Now today we are continuing our conversation, our series on the story of God. And we left off in our last conversation explaining the descent into madness, the falls, the falling. And we talked about the corruption of the devil as it's revealed in the prophetic literature. We talked about Genesis 3, then we talked about Genesis 6, then we talked about Genesis 10, then we talked about Genesis 11, which are kind of, you know, the fall in the garden. I skipped in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel 6, the Nephilim episodes and the legacy of destruction that that brings, uh, you know, 10, the description of like the, the table of nations, which becomes highly relevant, 11, the Tower of Babel. But Genesis 11 has, in, has the turning point inside the chapter. And it is really cool from a literary perspective that you don't get this massive, like, screen goes dark, everything is horrible, and then pick up in the next scene after the cold open with what's the solution. But right at the end of the Tower of Babel event, and the scattering of people all over the world, and the withdrawing of God to a strategic distance to not destroy evil. <laughs> uh, he begins the solution. And to talk about what that is, you know, we have to remember that the kind of frames we gave last time to interpret the problem, the strategic environment that we are in, we look at death and sin and spiritual oppression. And then another, a related three things uh, that sort of unpack different dimensions of the problem for the universe, which are the world and the flesh and the devil. So starting with that, we're going to start with that first one and go at the end of Genesis 11, the world is in a sorry state of chaotic evil. And the world is saturated with death and with sin. And it is under the power of depraved spiritual creatures. And the spiritual oppression, you know, that relates to there's no dwelling place for God with man. There's no people who exist inside the government of the direct reign of the Most High God, the Triune God. And what's going to happen is God is going to begin working through those problems in a brilliant way. But what else would you say to kind of frame the conversation we're going to have today, which is the rest of the Old Testament, the entire <laughs> story of Israel? Yeah, so this episode is our discussion on the story of Israel. And I think about it, there will inevitably be problems with framing it this way, but also it's generally helpful, especially in as much as this episode will relate to the next. But I think about Israel, the story of Israel as being salvation plan part A. Uh, don't take that too far. There's probably bad theological implications to thinking about part B, which would be Jesus and his arrival, his incarnation being the culmination of the salvation plan of God. So they're not disparate, they're not separate. Um, one's not plan B, as in, uh, well, my first attempt didn't work out, let's try something else. But simply part one, part two has less of a rhetorical effect than plan A, plan B. 
So part A, part B, not plan A, plan B. And therefore, Israel being the first stage, the first long setup to God's salvation plan. Mankind is separated from God. We are unable to fulfill the Edenic mandate of cultivating the world and being fruitful. We are unable to come into the presence of God because we are corrupted with sin and God is holy. We are uh, unable to mediate the revelation of God to the rest of the universe. Um, We've lost the plot. And so what is to be done? And I love that you refreshed us through the early chapters of Genesis up to Genesis 11 because the story of Babel is the culmination of the story of the fall and it sets up the metaphysical playing field for why God comes and chooses Israel. Wow, say more. One of my goals for this, for this conversation, I hope that anyone who listens, depending on where they are and understanding the story of God, I hope that there is a deeper level of appreciation of coherence for this part of the story. You and I have joked many times that the way the story often comes to us in the, in the so-called Protestant West is, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Adam and Eve fell, then there was a long dark spell, then Jesus came, died for our sins so we wouldn't go to hell, and if you believe in him, you'll be saved. And (laughs) there's obviously a big chunk of the story missing there. Everything in between, right? Everything in between, maybe a full understanding of the story of God, which is not something we claim to have, but something that we are striving toward. And that understanding of the story of God in which there's creation, fall, Jesus. On philosophical terms, God's plan, which involves picking a people out of all the nations of the earth, on metaphysical terms, on deep theological terms, that plan makes so much sense. And it is what was required for us to have any understanding of who Jesus is when he arrives. Yes, it really, the interesting thing is that the story really is creation, disaster, salvation. But salvation starts in Genesis 11. And this is going to like build toward the center point of reality in the work of Christ, but it's the beginning. And why we had to spend, and why we actually have to always go back to both God's design and the nature of the problem is because those two things will become our interpretive keys for the rest of the story. What is the universe for? What happened? And if the universe is, as you said, God made a paradise for humans to lie in the shade and, and glorify him, right? That's, and you go, okay, well then, why aren't we lying in the shade and glorifying God in the church right now? And I'm sorry, is that what we're going towards in the restoration of all things? And then if the problem is sin, sin, you're going to have uh, a really hard time understanding the real events in the story of Israel. You'll be blind to the characters and therefore blind to the action. There, I was listening recently to a couple church planters who I actually have gained so much from and really love. And they are anchored a little more deeply in the Reformed tradition. But what was fascinating was one of them opened the conversation by saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that may bend your mind a little bit. None of us is fully human. And I was like, this is a great opening premise. Yes, that's accurate. 
makes me think of there's a great short book by Father John Baer called Becoming Human on this very problem. Uh, but he said, we've all lost our humanity to, what do you think he filled in the blank with? Sin. Sin, yeah, it, precisely. And what was so fascinating is he, he's absolutely right, but that's not the entirety of the problem. And then, therefore, the way that these two men begin to explain and interpret the life of the church is all about addressing sin. As an extension of the story of Israel, which was an initial iteration of the address of sin, and it just doesn't work. I've mentioned Arthur McGill's book, Suffering, a Theological Account, before. He spends the first third of that book going, I want to help you understand suffering. So first, I need to remind you what God's nature is like, and then I need to remind you what the world is like. And in highly academic terms, here are two quotes from that book where he goes, Remember, in the New Testament, man's sin is presented not primarily as his perverse will or corrupt nature, but as his enslavement to a diabolic kingdom. He continues a few lines later, The church is not bound to make human sin the last and most serious form of evil, or to see Christ's redemptive work as simply the forgiveness and removal of sin. And what he's trying to explain is you have to understand rebellious spiritual powers. You actually just have to understand the presence of death in the world and think more like a New Testament Christian in order to interpret your story. Like uh, in Romans 5, you get Paul thinking along two tracks, sin and death. And they ride together, but they're also different, where he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, little aside, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned, he then continues his point. Uh, you have in 1 John 5, which we've cited before, John explaining what we know we are from God but the world lies in the power of the evil one. Like, their minds, in terms of God's redemptive work, are thinking along at least three tracks that relate to, okay, sin and what did that do? Death and what did that do? Spiritual oppression and what does that do? And then what, what does it mean for God to begin to make a brand new people through which to restore his original vision? The fallout from the story of Babel, in a similar fashion to when Adam and Eve were cast out from the garden, and that was a mercy so that they could not continue to access the tree of life while being in their fallen state. Also as an act of mercy and judgment, the people who are, I would infer, under Nimrod's rulership, working together to build this ziggurat to bring down the god and unify themselves uh, to elevate themselves to the status of gods and you know all that's going on there. As God's mercy and judgment, he scatters them across the face of the earth and divides their languages. And then he assigns those different nations to the rulership of his divine council, to the rulership of the Elohim, uh, to, to the gods. So the 70 nations, which is a, a metaphor of all the nations, are assigned to the gods. And this, you, you said earlier, God's strategy of separation so that we wouldn't die in our polluted state. 
the effect of the fall, the effect of mankind's rebellion against God, the effect of our participation with spiritual oppression and so on is such that we can't be near God without dying. And so he further separates himself from the nations and assigns them to the gods. In Deuteronomy 32.8, it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. And this second verse, verse 9 in Deuteronomy 32, alludes to his plan. So the nations are disinherited. They are assigned to the lowercase g gods. But there's still a problem, which is that God's purpose for mankind is currently not being served. And he desires intimate relationship with mankind. So what is the path forward out of this situation in which the nations are now under the authority of other gods and God himself is no longer immediately relating to the nations? This moment is a crux moment in the story of God because not only are the nations disinherited from the immediate relationship with the true God, but they actually continue to fall into sin by then worshiping the gods that they are assigned to And there's this back and forth dialectic of evil in which those gods tempt the people and desire their worship. And the people tempt the gods by worshiping them and all continue to fall. The gods continue in their rebellion against the Most High God and the people continue in their rebellion by worshiping the other gods, not the Most High God. This is the backstory, on one level at least, for why God calls out Israel. So I always, I see this stuff pretty cinematically, and if I had an infinite budget and were given, you know, the assignment to direct, like, make us, make us the Abram film, and beginning, it would be something like the beginning of the film Enemy at the Gates, the Jude Law movie about Stalingrad, and you would see, you know, there would be sort of the text on screen orienting to you what's going on and it sort of opens and it would be slow pan over a war zone at a high level and you would just realize okay I'm really being exposed to the state of corruption in a massive cosmic war that at this point looks is going terribly and then it would pan in and come in and you would maybe go to black, and you would just hear God say Abram's name, and boom, Abram's eyes open, and you're in Ur, and it's like, here's the story. You quoted Deuteronomy 32. It continues to tell the story of Abram, and it's so beautiful. Listen to this, starting in verse 10, going to verse 12. In a desert land he found him, in a barren, howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him, guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The Lord alone led him. Yahweh alone led him. No foreign god was there. And, which is just <laughs> epic. so evocative. Yeah, you get somewhere around the second millennium B.C., People like me think it's really fun to go plus or minus 200 years, plus or minus 500 years, and ooh, was it Ur, you know, Shamu who was the king, or was 
Abram actually inside the Akkadian Empire before that disappeared. It doesn't really matter. He shows up somewhere roughly about 2,000 years before the incarnation of Jesus. And he's in one of the oldest cities on the planet that's highly interesting for all kinds of reasons, and it's called Ur. And the biblical writer makes clear that it's Ur of the Chaldees. Now, there are no Chaldeans yet. That is a later Babylonian dynasty that's not going to exist for like a thousand years. But what he's saying is he's in Ur of the rebellious humans building an empire to defy God. That's where he is. He's where the Ur Ziggurat is, which is a thing we've mentioned before, a, an evil cosmic mountain that has been comically restored in the middle of the desert. The water has gone down in recent millennia. But he's in the bustling metropolis and because I've been writing and thinking about this, all kinds of interesting things are happening at this time. There's a tribe that's like the anti-Israel in this story, the nomadic people who are going to become the, the lead rebels. They're the Amorites or the Martu. But when Abraham, Abram at this time, when exalted father, named presumably by Terah to say how cool he was, but when exalted father... When my dad is awesome, <laughs> when world's best dad is in Ur, there are droves. There are, are all of these people on the move. There's a massive human migration of Martu coming down, and they're eventually going to take over the country. And Stephen, who remembers what happened accurately and reports it in the Book of Acts, says, yeah, well, he was still in Ur. Well, he was still in the land of the Babylonians. Yahweh appeared to him and said, we have to go. It's time now. Get, get on the road. And in so doing, God, at, from that moment on, calls Abraham. Now the, the birth of the nation is going to take place at Exodus. But now there is a people that is existing in relationship with God. And what's so important to know is that it is brand new. God does not choose any nation that exists exists already to carry out his redemption plan. He just picks a guy from the epicenter of the rebellion against God and goes, you know, from that, you know, Adam's made from the dust of the earth. Israel is made from the line of the Babylonians, but it becomes a new thing. This last point, I want to push back on a little bit or flesh out because several times recently in preparing for this episode, the idea that God called Abraham and from Abraham's descendants made a nation ex nihilo is spoken quite often. And yet the scriptures make a point of placing Abraham in the line of Shem. So he's not a random guy. He's not a guy from nowhere. I think both are true, that God does create a nation ex nihilo. He creates a new nation. So Israel is not the descendant of Babylon as a nation. It is, in that sense, ex nihilo, from nothing. But the man that God chooses, Abraham, is a descendant of this favored line, the son of Noah, Shem, the, the son of the covenant. And this is important, that Abraham doesn't come out of nowhere, that already the type, the category that is the remnant, or the preserved line, goes all the way back to Adam and passes through the line of blessing 
through Shem to Abraham. This has been a note of interest to me recently because I think it just adds more understanding to what God's doing in establishing a people. He's never lost the plot entirely. Yeah, okay. Let me see if I see the point you're making. Because if so, I like it. And if not, we can keep arguing. But which is to say that the nation is a new thing. Here's Stephen DeYoung, quote, God did not choose one of the existing nations to purify and make his own, electing Israel from among the abandoned nations. Israel is nowhere to be found in the list of 70 nations of the world in Genesis 10, which is an interesting proof text to go when you get the, the symbolic map of the entire world in Genesis 10 that gets referred to in Deuteronomy 32, Israel is not there. But the thread that you're picking up on is there are never any like axe swipes that cut off sections of the story from one another. And Adam has received, Adam and Eve, humanity and life, have received a blessing from God, a commission from God, and even in the end, the, both the promise of redemption and the sign of inheritance, which I think I said in the last you know, podcast that the tunics that they get are the kehonet, which are the priestly, both the priestly garb and the tunics of inheritance. And it goes, so there, real, so there is continuity here in the story that comes down and that idea of remnant of, there are always a few who are called by God and reminded who they are and respond. And that's a good lineage that we're actually a part of right now that Abraham himself is in. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's really important because if you take the God created Israel out of nothing story, you're actually missing the family lineage out of which Israel comes. So Israel is a new nation. It wasn't amongst the table of the nations prior. And yet, when God calls Abram, he says, I will make of you a great nation. So the nation of Israel is made of Abraham, made of the family line. In terms of what we do with that, well, it's one, how God chose to tell the story. Two, it emphasizes God's loving commitment to the salvation plan, which began even as the curses were coming down uh, upon the, the serpent and the judgments were coming down upon the earth and upon Adam and Eve that he never completely rebooted. He never started from scratch. We might think of the flood as being a complete reboot, and yet he preserves the family line and the promise, his commitment to people the whole way through. The narrative thread is never left, and so I would say it's insufficient to say God created Israel ex nihilo. God created the new nation that wasn't amongst the table of the nations, but he created that nation out of Abraham, who is a descendant of Shem and a descendant of Adam and Eve. Yes. Let's riff a little more on Remnant because this is going to be really important for the story that follows. And I'm just going to hit you with a few interesting texts. Because the concept of a remnant, probably we know what it is. Like there are some left over after all wars and apostasies who are faithful to God. But it's actually a major thematic thread in the entire story. So here are just a few. So the remnant is what's left over when you divide numbers? <laughs> okay. You know, let's just digress into number theory for a minute. <laughs> what do you call the top part of a fraction? Anyway, on to the theology of the remnant, which 
is fascinating that it's there all the way through both testaments. But First Kings 19, you get the story of Elijah at the mountain of God, and he's complaining that he is the only one left who serves Yahweh, and Yahweh responds, I have res reserved 7,000 in Israel, and then goes on, uh, who have not bowed to Baal and whose lips have not kissed him, which we riffed on in another show. In Ezekiel 6, 8, even at the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem for roasting their children alive on burning idols, you have, but I will, so this is Ezekiel 6, verse 8, but I will preserve a remnant of the people. One of my favorites is 2 Kings 19, uh, verses 1 to 4. This is in the middle of the back and forth between Hezekiah and Sennacherib through the Rabshakeh. Sennacherib is not there, and the reason why is because he is doing one of the great engineering feats of warfare of the ancient world up at a city called Lachish. And in the book of Isaiah, their familiarity with ancient war techniques, the prophetic familiarity which with ancient warfare techniques is pretty amazing, where Isaiah has this image of rocks pouring like a waterfall over the front of an oncoming army, which is how they would make a, they would make basically the ultimate bucket brigade to a mine for stones, pass them soldier to soldier, make a pile, and then stones would be pouring like water off the front of that ramp as it got higher and higher and as it moved up. And they made one of the biggest ones of all time, the Assyrians did, to destroy Lachish, which would just be terrifying to see this massive logistics machine making building a ramp to get to you. And because they build it from the back, there's nothing you can do to stop them from doing it. It's terrifying enough as is, not to mention the Assyrians are the ones ascending that ramp. They, yeah, that's... They weren't very friendly. It's not like the Peace Corps. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to bring you some cookies. Yeah, they are terrible. Uh... So that's why Sennacherib's not there, in case you've ever wondered in the conversation, because, you know, Hezekiah is one of the main reasons that Sennacherib showed up in the Levant at that time. I know at least one listener was wondering that. <laughs> and being like, was Hezekiah really the archon of a league of rebellious states? Probably. And does that make him cooler? Yes. Uh, but here's... Hezekiah gets the message from Sennacherib that's basically, you're dead. And here's the verse. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. But pray for the remnant that may survive. So Hezekiah's imagination is entirely shaped by this concept of not quite in vain. Some will make it. The promise won't die. 
and all the way through, you're going to see widespread apostasy and evil, and in the middle, some group of people in close relationship with God keeping the promise alive. Now, someone is wondering, maybe, how this applies to ecclesiology today, because... I was just going to make some, like, five different jokes Every, <laughs> I'm guessing that most churches or families inside churches or denominations think of themselves as yes. the remnant. <laughs> uh. And I would go, no, 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 the remnant, remnant theology doesn't do this. What it, it doesn't say, try to figure out if you're elect or not. Try to figure out if you're the remnant. Your job is to love Jesus and respond to the invitations you see him making you right now. I thought all the churches that didn't go woke were the remnant. <laughs> but you're, I'm not even going to respond to your joke. <laughs> what remnant theology positions you to do is to not be surprised when it kind of looks like the church is losing. When it kind of looks like, you're like, man, are the churches in my area asleep or apostate? Or some of times they seem to be doing things that reflect the kingdom of God and the miracle working power of Jesus. And sometimes what is happening? And go like, yeah, remnant theology lets you not judge the situation you're in, but know that, hey, inside of this, there is a living and thriving kingdom that is achieving the purposes of Jesus. And I would love to be a part of that. My way into that is actually just to preserve my life of love with God and then walk out how to respond to him in the ways that I see season to season, month to month, decade to decade. I feel that the solution is follow Jesus and live out the way of Christ. There is a challenge. We should view the concept of the remnant and remnant theology as a challenge to us, as a warning that uh, the way is narrow, that you know, many called, few chosen, that uh, there will be much apostasy. So rather than responding to the concept of remnant theology by assuming we're the remnant and in pride uh, calling anyone different than us not the remnant and uh, tooting our own horn <laughs> in regards to being the faithful remnant, we should actually, it should increase in us the fear of God and our desperate reliance upon Jesus. Our only hope to be preserved is Jesus, not our own self-righteousness. And you should expect it to be hard. Yes, it's hard. It is a challenge. There is risk. Where you will hit these moments of, do I say this in this relationship? Do I raise this in my church? Do I keep this job or not? And yes, as you know, as you were just saying, if most people, most of the time, are inclining towards some form of destructive behavior, well, then you should not, we should not be surprised when we find ourselves presented with a real challenge. Do I respond to Jesus right now or just kind of go hit the jackal switch in ghost mode and keep on as I am. And, and I feel really alone right now. It's like, oh, you're not alone. You actually have the cloud of witnesses around you. You have an incredible tradition, a la Abraham. You are in a good family. And yes, 
there is a real dimension uh, of in Milton's Paradise Lost, which we haven't taken any knocks or at yet or praised for its literary brilliance, but there's one of my favorite speeches of all time. It's from the angel Abdiel given to Satan as you know they approach for to make war against the kingdom of God and Abdiel, he was a part of like the rebellious council, but he did not leave the king- service of God. He opposed and then he ran and he's challenging Satan as sort of the legions of darkness are approaching. You're about to get a sweet battle scene. And he says, you know, fool, did you think to have reached the throne of God unopposed? And then some version of when one in a thousand seemed to know the truth, you will learn too late that few may know when thousands err. Oh, it gives me shivers. Doesn't it? So you're like, yeah, there's an element of uh, real loneliness in the concept of a remnant. Uh, There is also real hope and belonging. And we say again, don't fall into the pitfall of trying to trying to appraise from the outside and figure out which friends or churches or people in your area are inside and outside of the real nation of Israel or not. Also, a great way to take a church faction a weird direction is to give it an overly specific name that results that refers to remnant theology, <laughs> like the post-Elijah real remnant of Israel Assemblies of God Church or something like that. Trademark. <laughs> so it also reminds me of the story of Elijah who thinks he's the last faithful prophet, and then God reminds him, I still have 7,000 prophets reserved who are faithful. On one hand, we should be challenged by the idea of remnant theology. There's also encouragement that there are many people who are faithful, and God is, his kingdom is growing, and he is winning. You're not alone. Moving forward, maybe a little faster, we want to address the issues of spiritual rebellion, sin, and death, and talk about how God's creation of the Israel of nation through the calling of Abraham, solves these problems, how it perpetuates his plan of salvation, maintaining relationship with, with humankind. So the nations are disinherited. They are in relationship with other gods, and spiritual rebellion has won the day so far. God is not in relationship with the nations of mankind. And so he calls out Abraham and says, I will make of you a great nation. Um, in Genesis 12, It says, now Yahweh said to Abram, go from, by the way, I'm going to keep saying Abraham, but obviously his name is not Abraham yet. His his name becomes Abraham at uh, one of the covenant moments. Just know it's one guy and that his status relates to the blessing that he's given and that's reflected in his name. That's all you need. (laughs) Exactly. And I'm not going to be consistent with my usage. So now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here we have, uh, at least in a very summarized form, the story. God is calling Abraham. And through Abraham's line, he will make a new nation that will somehow be able to relate to God, even though all the other nations can't. And through that nation, all the rest of the families of the earth will be blessed. 
This is what's going on when God sets out on his journey to establish the nation of Israel. So I want to read from Thomas Torrance, one of my favorite theologians, Scottish guy, in the heritage of Bart, but a theologian in, in his own right for sure. I want to read from Thomas Torrance and his book, The Mediation of Christ, on what is going on when God elects Israel. So what Torrance says is that God chooses Israel to be the mediator as a nation of God's revelation and reconciliation to all mankind. Mankind has lost, one, the revelation of God. They don't know who he is and they worship other gods. And two, they are, as we've described, in rebellion, tainted by sin and under the law of death. And so we need both the revelation of God and his plan and his character and all the things of his whole story. And we need reconciliation. And God chooses Israel as the vehicle through which to begin delivering that story of revelations, reconciliation to the world. Just like we said that the fall is progressive, that it happens over the course of many punctuated moments, the calling out of Israel and the revelation of his whole plan of salvation is also progressive. It begins with the calling of Abram and continues to the establishment of the nation of Israel when Moses descends the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the Torah. And of course, it climaxes with the revelation of Jesus to all mankind and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This, that, that whole story is the story of salvation. And so I'm going to read what Thomas Torrance has to say about this. God took Israel into his hands in this unique way in order to provide the actual means, a whole set of spiritual tools, appropriate forms of understanding, worship, and expression, through which apprehension of God could be made accessible to human beings and knowledge of God could take root in the soil of humanity. A two-way movement was involved, an adaptation of divine revelation to the human mind and an adaptation of articulate forms of human understanding and language to divine revelation. That is surely how we are to regard God's long historical dialogue with Israel. The penetration of the word of God into the depths of Israel's being and soul in such a way that it took human shape and yet in such a way that the human response it called forth was so locked into the word in God that it was used as the vehicle of further address on the part of that word to Israel. That ever-deepening spiral movement of God's self-revelation to Israel was far from being an easy or painless process. The Old Testament scriptures, which are the product of it, show that Israel was subjected to the most appalling suffering and ordeal in which Israel was again and again broken upon the wheel of divine providence in order to become pliable and serviceable within the movement of God's intimate self-giving and self-communicating to it as a people set apart for that end. So, summarizing so far, God chose Israel, and through a painful and long process— uh, not only painful, it was his grace to choose Israel, but through a painful and long process, he began to give them spiritual tools, forms of understanding, forms of worship and expression through which they could apprehend God and begin relating to him. When Torrance talks about the appalling suffering of that process, of what it means to be the elect called out people, um, not that I think I'm that, but I feel I have a taste of that in what we were referring to at the beginning of this conversation, the mortification of the flesh and the humiliation of going lower and following Jesus in his cruciform path. It's different because we are not Israel. We are not the elect in that regard. The path of being transformed to be able to relate to God fully, the path of sanctification is 
It's a journey of experiencing true life through death. So Torrance continues, Throughout that harrowing experience, the covenant bond between God and Israel was steadily tightened and knotted into the existence of Israel as a people, which had the effect of making Israel stand out as an oddity among the other peoples of the earth, and of plunging it into internal upheaval whenever it chafed at its covenanted destiny. The fact that Israel was called to be the people entrusted with the oracles of God, which it could not be without embodying those oracles in its way of life, brought upon Israel intense suffering, physical and mental, in its relations with other peoples. But Israel had to suffer above all from God, precisely as the chosen medium of his self-revelation to mankind. For divine revelation was a fire in the mind and soul and memory of Israel, burning away all that was in conflict with God's holiness, mercy, and truth. By its very nature, that revelation cannot be faithfully appropriated and articulated apart from conflict with deeply ingrained habits of human thought and understanding, and without the development of new patterns of thought and understanding and speech as worthy vehicles of its communication. The process of as a nation becoming the people who are transformed, given the new life of the original humanity that could carry the revelations, the oracles of God, and mediate God's revelation and reconciliation to all mankind. It was a process that involved destroying what was not compatible to make a way for the new life. It gives us a picture of what Israel had to go through to be the called out nation that could bear the revelation of who God is with all his holiness and all his other qualities, be transformed. And so, as God said in his calling of Abram, be the blessing and share that relationship and revelation to the rest of mankind. This reminds me of a quote from Professor Jerry Sitzer, whose book on the loss of his wife is A Grace Disguised, which is sort of relating to a grief observed, Lewis's book, but in it he reports about a piece of advice that he was given from a dear friend as he was trying to grapple with his grief, which is the, the sun has gone down and you're chasing the sun that has set. If you want to find the sun, you have to turn around and run into the darkness. And there's this element uh, that we're going to get to here in a minute on like passing through death into life being the way into restoration at this stage in the story. But that's very much the mystery of the whole story of Israel is you get to be the chosen people. You get to remind humanity, which is afflicted with amnesia, who God is, what he's actually like, what he's done, what he's up to, what his offer is to you. And the way to get there, to be free of the domination of everything that is destroying you, is to stop trying to make life work, stop trying to escape what is afflicting you, but to turn around and what we said in the way of mortification, like, the rising sun is coming. Just turn around and walk into the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I feel like there are weird philosophical ways of interpreting that that I really don't mean besides death to life is the way forward. Now, we have a couple more points to make on being a nation that, that sort of address these things. Okay, the nation is going to solve multiple problems, one of which is that there's no direct source of the government of God on earth, meaning there's no happiness, there's no joy. The source of all life has, has had to pull back from humanity because God's goodness is 
destructive to evil, and humanity has become so deeply, like, sexually linked to evil, it cannot get itself free. So what does he do? He chooses a people to reestablish the lines of communication and blessing directly and then to everyone else. And so there's kind of these two questions of, you know, what does it mean to be a nation? And then how do you be included? How do you be a part of that nation? Which are both extremely relevant questions. And there's lots to be said about what it means to be a nation. One of the main points that I would make is that God is with you. The God who you serve, his nature is going to inform the quality of every part of life. And at the beginning, right, we had God building a temple in the cosmos and then setting up his idol in it in the form of humanity to show the cosmos what he is like and then coming to walk with them in the cool of the day. Like God, the only good one coming to dwell. And that gets restored, you know, Eden, the template of Eden, gets restored in the center of the life of Israel, eventually post-Exodus, in the life of the temple. There's a line I love from N.T. Wright in How God Became King, where he says, This pattern, God intending to live among his people, being unable to because of their rebellion, but coming back in grace to do so at last, is in a measure the story of the whole Old Testament. And it happens over and over again where God finds a way and where you build the temple. And we talked about cosmic mountains and the way that the imagery of the trees and the rivers and the fruit in the temple was like, remember, this is Eden. Eden is where God is. And the stones, the barrel on the breastplate of the priest were reminders of the mountain of God and saying, God gets to come dwell with you. The source of all life is going to be in the middle of the people. That is a main part of what it means to be a nation, to get to serve a God as that God is with you. This is a really bad thing if the God who's with you wants to literally devour you. One of the names of the opponent gods translates loosely to death by fire, which is kind of like a mockery of purification by fire. Uh, but like, this is a good thing. What does it mean to be a nation? God is with you. Two other quick points I'd like to make here in terms of Israel's role. As a nation, Israel serves as a priest to the rest of mankind. A priest is a mediator between God and other people. As Torrance said, the revelation of God and then the reconciliation. Also, Israel serves the rest of the world as God's prophet. The point Torrance was making earlier about Israel mediating the revelation, that's Israel as prophet to the rest of the world. They receive the word of God and should faithfully relay it to the rest of humanity. About this, Torrance says, in seeking to understand the role of Israel in the mediation of revelation, we must consider not just Jews, not just this or that prophet or this or that author in the Old Testament scriptures, but Israel as a whole, all Israel, to use St. Paul's expression, that is, Israel as a coherent entity before God. 
God mediated his revelation through the totality of Israel's existence and mission. For Israel came into being and has continued to remain what it is precisely as the corporate counterpart to the self-revelation, self-communication of God to mankind. This means that we must think of Israel itself as the prophet sent by God, not just Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, but Israel. While Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the prophets are to be understood within the one body, which had been brought into a special relationship with God, within which it was molded and structured as the earthen vessel to receive and communicate the word of God to mankind. Israel is the prophet that bears the oracles of God to the rest of the nations. Yeah, and since we're here, you know, the prophet, there's been lots of good academic work done on the, on the fact that, you know, a prophet, the Nevi'im, it just describes a spokesperson, but that actually being a spokesperson is not the entire role of a prophet. And it even says in the kingdom books that there's a little aside and it says the prophet used to be called a seer and that there are good forms of divination from the role of the priests with Urim and Thummim all the way up to Gideon's fleece, all the way up to the performance art of Ezekiel. So it's like, what is it? You're a prophet? What is it? And you're able to see in a myriad of ways, both in hearing and directly seeing and in sensing, the real design of God for the universe and then being able to display or communicate, whether in performance art or an oracle or in the way you live your life, some part of that. So the prophetic is linked to revelation, you know prophecy and reality. And as a prophet, Israel is both positioned to see and to be reminded of and to engage reality as it truly is and to display that reality to the world. For the nerds listening, if you want just a great resource on kind of prophets in the ancient world that will help you understand what roles get picked up on and what roles get inverted in Israel, Michael Flower's book, the seer in ancient Greece is fantastic. And it just kind of, it talks about this thing of the prophetic relates to ultimate reality and people try different hacks to engage it and either succeed or fail. But Israel as a prophet is a very, very fruitful concept. The other resource that we'll name drop here, we've mentioned it before, is Walter Brueggemann's Prophetic Imagination. It's a whole book about the bigger picture of what it means to be a prophetic people. Okay, part two, which I just said would be uh, part of this discussion, is how does a person be included? Uh, this is vital, you know, from now until the future, from, from the origin point with Abram till forever, how a person becomes an heir of the promise that's given to Abram is hugely important. So God makes a nation for himself, therefore reestablishing the rule of goodness and beauty and life and order and everything good. And he comes and dwells with his people in the tabernacle, living among them. And then the amazing thing here is like, is how do you be included? There actually is a way beyond far beyond being genealogically related to Abram to be a part of the nation of Israel. And the, 
that relates basically to these two concepts of the covenants and then the law, which are the vassal treaties inside those covenants. So Ant-Man, the covenants, which begin with Abram and kind of go all the way through the work of Christ. Where would you start in unpacking those? Well, let's start with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17. I'll just read it. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, and the, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner, who is not of your offspring. Both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here we have God making promises, making his covenant with Abraham, and we have uh, the, the sign in the flesh of that covenant being circumcision. So... An important part of the answer to the question of how is someone included in the covenant is that they come into relationship with Abraham in the bigger sense of Abraham as a, uh, a people, and then they take on the sign of covenant relationship with God by being circumcised. Right, and that progresses. So it goes, who's in? Those who put their hand up become relationally connected and then ratify their agreement with this external sign. Yeah, there's two ways to be brought in. One, by descent, or two, by putting your hand up by some... by You're not dis, uh, a descendant of Abraham, but you are brought in through other relational means. Either way, you have to take on the sign of circumcision. And that is going to continue into what is often regarded, and by often accurately regarded as the actual formation event inside the Bible. Has any nation, has any God ever taken a nation for himself out of another nation is the Exodus. So the promises exist. The covenant exists. I will make you into a nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. When does that happen? Well, it happens on the night of the Passover, and it happens in everything that follows. And what is key about the Passover event is it is, again, who wants to put their hand up, take the Passover meal 
and follow this God, Yahweh. You can be in. Here's another quote from our boy Stephen DeYoung, which is, the initial shape of the nation and people of Israel is defined by those marked out by the blood of the Passover lamb. Important to note is that when the people left Egypt, it included an ethnically mixed group of Egyptians and other Semitic migrants. You can see this in Exodus 12, 38. You can also see this if you've watched The Prince of Egypt recently, and during the actual Exodus moment when everyone's leaving, it shows a number of Egyptian guards who take off their wigs and drop their spears and join the procession. Yeah, that's... That's biblical. Now, if it would have been really biblical, it would have showed those guys choosing beforehand to take the Passover meal. But inclusion in the kingdom of God is being a member of a covenant. Covenants have privileges and responsibilities. I don't think this is like brand new territory, maybe hopefully for anyone here. And so when the people are taken through the Sea of Reeds, the, through death into life and then to the mountain of God, to Eden, they get what has you know, often been written about as a vassal treaty. Uh, and these are really cool because what a vassal treaty is, is when a people have been newly acquired in the ancient world, either by conquest or you know, being absorbed or in the case of someone like the Persian Achaemenids, someone who just saw the might of the empire and were like, don't bother sending your army here. We just want to be in. A vassal treaty did two things, in essence. It introduced the king. And it was like, here is who your new king Cyrus is. Here's what he's done. Here's what he's like. And then two, here are the terms of good relationship between you. Cyrus will protect you with his army. He will, you know, extend trade routes and build roads in your area. He will share the Persian infrastructure. And what you will do is fill in the blank. You will give this kind of taxes. You will accept this kind of administration. You will do these things that the relationship would be good between you. The law given at Sinai has that form. Here is God. He, who is he? He's the one who made the world on purpose and with pleasure. And he appeared to your ancestor Abraham, and he told him these things. And he delivered you from Egypt with mighty wonders and with an outstretched arm. Don't forget it. He parted the waters of death that you could pass through. A real historical event and a and, you know, as we often say, the symbolic as the real, and a highly symbolic and spiritual and significant event. And what are the terms? How do you be included in the kingdom of God? You live this way. You have fewer rules to follow than those that govern foot professional football, as has often been observed. And it's like you live righteously, that there would be good relationship between you and this king who has formed you as a people. Fewer rules than football. I'd never heard that. I was looking into this recently for other reasons. I forget how I stumbled upon this, but I recently updated my understanding of the relationship between circumcision for entrance into the people of God in the Old Testament through, uh, into Israel and baptism as the mark that we now take on to enter into the people of God. 
as Christians. There are basically three parts to the conversion process of becoming a Jew. One of which, to your point, is accepting the teachings, commitment to living in the way that uh, a Jew would live. Um, here are the rules of engagement. Here is the way that one can relate to God and be a part of the people. And I've learned it, at least to some degree, and I've said, yes, I will live that way. Two, they were circumcised. And right now we're talking about being converted into Judaism versus being born in, uh, in Israel life. Uh, two, they were circumcised. And three, I don't know if you knew this. I can't believe I didn't know with all of my research about baptism prior, but you were immersed in a mikvah, a ritual bath. What? Have you ever heard this? No. When I learned this, I was so pissed off because uh, last year I, I did a deep, deep dive into um, the theology pun and intended? background. <laughs> pun intended, I guess. Uh, into the theology and background of baptism. And I was like, what? So I basically, I think if I'm correct, I'd gotten some bad, some bad teaching actually on equating circumcision and baptism versus relating them. So there's circumcision, which is, uh, which in the New Testament happens in the heart, and then baptism, which apparently still happens, right? Uh, being ritually immersed in a bath as a mark of being cleaned and maybe reborn, things like that. For now, let's just emphasize that circumcision, ritual bath, and agreeing to walk in the ways of the Torah um, are how one converted into becoming a, a part of the people of God. So important. A little footnote for consideration on what you just said is uh, it's, always, it's always been interesting to me to learn and to try to track down where the New Testament things come from. Yeah. And after, you know, there's the 400-year interval during which when I was in, you know, the Christian college world, it was kind of, it was the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card was if there was something that you didn't know what it was in the New Testament, like a Sadducee, it had to have appeared in the intertestamental period. And that's just how it is. But at the opening of the Testaments, you have the last of the Old Testament prophets there in the New Testament, John the Baptist, baptizing people, and somehow they know what that is. Yeah. And it naturally, you know, raises the question, where did that come from? What did they think they were doing? How did they know what that was? Look over at the Sadducees and be like, yeah, those are just, just they're just Zetakites. I mean, it actually is an Old Testament thing. And there has been some development and strangeness between the two, but this all kind of, there, there is continuity here. And all of this, all of this is on di sin, disaster, sphere, characteristic one, spiritual oppression. How does God begin salvation, the healing of the world? He establishes a nation where instead of being ruled by a king who is a violent and destructive, depraved spiritual creature like Molech or some such thing, you can actually live where the king is the God, Yahweh. How, wow, it's amazing. What does that mean? It means that Yahweh is going to live with you and his nature is going to characterize every part of your life. Third, you know, uh, what does a person have to do to be 
included. How are you in? Well, actually, there is a way in. There is a covenant that has been made that outlines a pathway into belonging, which is to do the law and to do the signs. And as you'll see, sort of absolute bare minimum is going to look like be circumcised and perhaps this baptism thing, which we want to dive more into. I'm going to keep harping on that pun. And so you have to be circumcised and you have to take the Passover meal as a lasting statute for both you and, you know, all the people who have become your people. And you have a nation as such, a people who share a ritual life under a God. Importantly, circumcision was a mark taken on by the males of the people, obviously. So what about the women? How did this mark of covenant extend to the rest of the people of Israel? This raises an important category, which is patriarchy. And uh, while the word patriarchy, especially in the Western modern context that we're speaking into, is extremely contentious and almost universally seen as a bad thing, it's simply a fact that the way the covenant, which was a good thing and a source of uh, and a means of grace, extended to women was in their relationship within the patriarchal society. So it's important that the mark of circumcision was on the genitals, the point of procreation, and the wife of the male Israelite, for instance, through their sexual union, would be included in that covenantal relationship. And otherwise, whatever the, the female's relationship within the patriarchal structure connected them through relationship, whether it be the authority of the father or the oldest brother or the husband, etc. They were somewhere covered under the authority of some male in the society who extended to them his covenantal relationship. I don't want to get totally waylaid by modern senses of justice and equity and things like that, but uh, it's really important to let that exist as it's given to us. I want to spend a few minutes developing this idea of patriarchy and without making claims about how families should should operate now or without this being some argument for return etc i simply want to communicate the fact that god chose a people a society that was structured patriarchally is actually one of the most beautiful things about how he communicates his plan of salvation and loving relationship in that it paints a picture of what is to come in Jesus. It's actually a really sad thing that patriarchy is so, while well, one has been lived out so unjustly and unlovingly and unsacrificially in terms of whatever patriarchal society or your relationship with your own father, etc., um, that like that patriarchy sadly has come to be the source of a lot of injustice in the world and. Uh, and so is probably not, maybe not rightly hated, but fairly in terms of people's experience, hated so much in Western society. And obviously this brings up all kinds of conversations about feminism, relationships be between men and women, and so on. But for most of my life, I have read the patriarchal structure of Israel as being purely incidental and accidental. Like that's how, that's how society is used to be, and so God shows up through it. It's inferior, it's subpar, you know, it would have been better if they were equitable societies or whatever you want to call it, um, but they weren't, and so this is what God had to work with. He incidentally works through this societal structure 
but it would have been better if it wasn't that way, okay? I've really almost never heard it any other way. The meaning of it was first expressed to me by a teacher that I'm very glad to recommend to you, and I can't believe we haven't referred to him thus far in this podcast, and that is Ray Vanderlaan. Ray Vanderlaan is, I think, the most underrated teacher in Christian like content creation today. Uh, and I realized recently when I was returning to his work, I really wish that Ray Vanderlaan occupied the place that N.T. Wright does in Christian popular content. <laughs> and this is not um, a harsh on N.T. Wright. I mean, I've read many of his books and benefited from his teaching. So in this context, I have no beef against him. It's not about that. But it's simply to, to say that Ray Vanderlaan is such an amazing teacher whose work is so important in giving people a fresh understanding of the whole story of God that if I had to pick one or the other in terms of people I hope would be a major influence, it would be Ray Vanderlaan. I think one of the reasons that he is not more popular is that his content is not well distributed. Um, he has a teaching platform called Follow the Rabbi, I believe it is, and his content is distributed via Focus on the Family. They don't have the best digital platforms and so on, so it's, uh, it's sort of hidden, but we will include links to some of his resources because he's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. I actually had the privilege of sitting in the room with Ray Vanderlaan for a two or three days seminar in which he taught us basically about the whole Old Testament. He taught us the Shema and took us through many of um, the elements of the story of God. He is a wonderful man. He's really intense. He's, he's tall. He's kind of a big guy. And I, I remember some of the girls in our class, as we talked about it afterwards, saying that he kind of scared them because when he gets excited, he starts yelling. Um, so he's this like super intense teacher who will start yelling the more excited he gets about what he's teaching. He's this white guy from the U.S. who uh, went and studied in Jewish schools he studied the Old Testament with the Jews, effectively. And his whole thing is teaching you to read the Old Testament like a Jew. Um, teaching you the Jewish reading of the Old Testament and the New Testament, actually. In rediscovering him, I realized so much of the way that I read the Bible and the, the things that I take as givens. Like, for instance, the rule of the first time, right? Like, the first time a word comes into the scriptures is really important. Or, like in our last episode, I mentioned how God says to the woman, her desire will be for the man. And then, oh, the next time that word comes up is sin is crouching at the door and his desire is for you. The logic of connecting those two things as informing you what that desire means uh, comes from Ray Vandalon, for me at least, and so on. What he has to say about the story of Israel and patriarchy absolutely blew my mind. Uh, Blaine, who is the father's firstborn son? Who is the father's firstborn son? Yes. Jesus. The father's firstborn son is Israel. In Exodus 4, 21 through 23, it says, And Yahweh said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Israel is actually the firstborn son of God. And in the patriarchal society of Israel, the way it was designed to be, not the way it was often lived out with sinful men uh, leveraging their power to oppress and take advantage and hoard resources and so on. The vision of the patriarchal society is that when the father died, and left his inheritance, the majority of that inheritance would go to the firstborn son 
within a tribe, let's say, a tribal unit or something like that. It was the firstborn son's job to steward the resources given to him and ensure that all the people under his care were taken care of, that they had a place, that their societal place was preserved and functioning well, and that they had what they needed. They were well fed. When the firstborn son was given the greater portion of the inheritance, prior to Ray Vandalon teaching about this, I never thought of anyone else thinking about that as a good thing, right? You would only be jealous. You would only feel left out. And yet the vision was actually that everyone under that firstborn son's care would celebrate when he received the inheritance because it was his job to lead by coming under and taking care of them. So like, oh, wonderful. My older brother has these resources and his job is to take care of me. The picture behind the word redeem is that when a member of that tribe, of that family, was lost, was captured, was in some way, like their relationship with the rest of the tribe was broken, it was the patriarch's job to go and find them and to pay whatever price it took to bring them back into the family and reestablish their position. And that process was called redemption. That's what redeeming them was. Not only was it the firstborn's, the firstborn sons, the patriarch's job to take care of everyone and assure shalom, assure everyone had a place and what they needed, it was also his job to go and bring them back when they were lost. So you, you can picture Abraham going and fighting the war to you know, save Lot, for instance, as a, a picture of redemption. You can picture that's a major part of what the book of Ruth is about, except that she's a Moabite woman, which is fascinating. And Boaz is a, a wonderful picture of a redeemer. Tell me if, if this has been a question for you. I've always wondered, what is the meaning of the principle that many times throughout the Old Testament, the firstborn son gets passed over and the second or some other son gets the firstborn son's portion? I've always been mystified that. I've seen it as a theme. Has this been a question for you? Not, uh, I have a way of thinking about that. Yeah. But I've certainly observed the theme where the latecomer gets the inheritance, which we could riff in more, but I'm very curious about the theme that you're about to draw out here. I think there's probably layers to it, but for me, it's always just been a question. I've put it in this place in my mind where like someday this question will be answered. And I've always known basically that it's God's good pleasure to disrupt the systems of man and, and that his kingdom is upside down and things like that. So I've kind of generally had a sense for how it's God's pleasure to do things the way he wants, not the way that we want. But I've always sensed that there was some deeper meaning to that repeating pattern in which the firstborn son gets passed over. And it finally clicked for me when I realized that Israel is the firstborn son. And of course, God's uh, younger son in this, within this narrative framework ends up being Jesus, right? It was the firstborn son's job to take the inheritance, all the riches of the father, and to steward them, and to bring in, uh, you can imagine Israel as being the redeemer uh, of the other nations, right? It was their job to go and bring in the other nations into the larger family of God. Uh, they failed to fulfill that mission because of sin, because of continuing to commit adultery with the other gods. And ultimately, Jesus is the younger son to whom the firstborn son's portion comes, and he will ultimately fulfill that patriarchal role of stewarding the riches of the father uh, administering them to the whole household of God and of redeeming the whole world, all the nations. That's my extended argument for why we should really read the patriarchal structure of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And we'll see it 
more or less fulfilled, more or less abused, but the original vision of patriarchy is a good one. And it's one that when lived out well, demonstrates to the world the heart of the Father. Fascinating. There's so much there. I don't want to gloss over this without maybe adding nuance to some of the theological ramifications. You know, for example, us Nicene Constantinople Christians agree that Jesus was begotten of the Father before all ages, and that, as it says in Hebrews 12, he's the firstborn from where? From among the dead, and the first fruit of the age to come. And this really interesting, I wonder if there is a read it both ways based on the theme that you're dialing in on thing, because that Israel is not only called the firstborn son, it's also, I mean, there are many family metaphors, including in the book of Ezekiel. (laughs) We're keeping it in. (laughs) Ezekiel, Israel is the adopted daughter who's redeemed by God to become a wife. And that theme is very much there. Uh, And it's like, well, what do you do with Israel at this place being designated as, like, this is my firstborn? Is that symbolic in the nuanced way we use the word symbolic? Is it it an icon, a picture of a reality? Or is it a description that frames the Exodus event as, you know, Israel, when it says, is my portion, that's a firstborn something. That's you, this is the entirety of my possession. And what happens to the firstborn happens to everything using the ancient world logic. But I would would just say that you can say here to map it, you can say here to dial in on this theme, Israel is the firstborn son in the Old Testament, in the story of God. Look at that and see what happens what themes come into light if you read it that way. Jesus is the unique monogenesaic born before all ages son of God who relates to the system, to borrow a ter- phrase from our friends at the Lord of Spirits, continuities and discontinuities, like plays in as inheritance coming to second born and also upturns the whole thing in a way that raises questions about where's the beginning and where's the end in the story. But patriarchy as something that is actually really important to understand as a vehicle of not, as it's been expressed, violence or domination, but blessing unto expressing the whole role of humanity in families is, yeah, put a double underline is a really important thing, uh, a really wonderful thing to contemplate and actually see what role it's playing in the story itself. Yeah, it's part of the form of Israel among the nations and part of the form within the society of Israel that communicates information to us about the salvation plan of God. Now, all of our conversations so far, patriarchy and sonship, covenants, the relationship with Abraham has been in response, has been a way of explaining how God begins the salvation project as it relates to the problem that is spiritual oppression. And as we went offline for a bit and had a conversation, we did have, you know, we had a little back and forth on what's the right way to talk about the presence of malevolent spiritual beings, fallen angels on the planet. Because these nations, you know, the the Babel event 
wasn't like a spirit rolled in and made everyone a slave in the way that an earthly emperor was. It was a human motivated in partnership with foul spirits rebellion that had the end result of, okay, you want to serve one of these gods? You can. And then you find yourself oppressed. So the causal arrow goes both ways in this kind of first problem. Humans electing to serve and then finding themselves oppressed and enslaved by depraved spiritual powers, which God addresses both by forming a nation in which he's the king and by make, giving away for people to become a member of that nation. We talked about Israel as prophetic nation. We talked about Israel as priest and hinted as we start to talk about sin that on the Day of Atonement, you know, the center of the ritual life of the Jewish people after meeting with God at Sinai, they would sacrifice 70 bulls and in so doing, make atonement for the whole world. They would be intercessors who expressed the covering and the hope of God to all the nations. But that still leaves in kind of the high-level bracketing two problems that, ha that are a result of the falls. And one is sin, the other is death. Talking about sin first, which any of these, you know, could be their own podcast series. And there are podcast series out there that relate to these topics. But sin is the ontological, the on the level of our nature, corruption of humanity becoming enmeshed with evil such that it's not possible for us to survive in the presence of a God who is wonderful. So what do you do about that? And that's where you get the sacrificial system that sets up the once and for all covering of Jesus. But Ant-Man, sacrificial system, where does a person even start? Are we going to give nods and take knocks at René Girard? Are we going to ignore him in this conversation? <laughs> Let us not discuss Girard in, in this conversation. I'm actually a fan, but I just don't want to go there today. Uh, the place to start is in the original fall, in the garden, and the hint at the sacrificial system that is provided when Yahweh, after Adam and Eve have broken a relationship with Yahweh, he makes for Adam and for his wife, reading from Genesis 3.21, garments of skins, and he clothes them. This is the first hint at the sacrificial system that we get in which Adam and Eve find themselves to be naked when they didn't, and, uh, and to experience shame when pre previously they had not known this after having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Yahweh kills presumably two animals and uses the skin of those animals to cover, to clothe Adam and Eve, uh, to hide their nakedness, to temporarily, superficially, don't take that word to the bank in terms of the whole system, deal with the problem of, of their nakedness that has been exposed. Well, now let's unpack for a second because you said 
Yahweh kills these animals. And it doesn't say that in the text. It says that he makes the garments. Oh, yeah. This, this is something you have thoughts on, right? You've done some reading on this topic. To me, it's just implicit. But tell us more. I think two potential ways. One is that Adam has been the high priest of Eden up till this moment. So this would still be his job. And you can find all kinds of speculative literature here. Like the thing that you get for sure in the text is that they have skins. Those came from animals. Many theologians have read this as the introduction of the sacrificial system. And by many, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty majority opinion. Like the, the thing, the, I'm gonna use the word on purpose, mechanisms of which leave room for exploration which covers sin, took place. The, there was animal death. The, now, it, we'll see in a second here that it may not be the death itself that's re- the relevant part. But it's, the other option is that Jesus, as the priest at the center of reality, being the embodied Yahweh, is here performing the priestly act and in fact does this personally. Uh, either option, very fruitful. Um, but you end up with the introduction of the sacrificial system and uh, the entire labyrinth of Protestant theology in one fell swoop. <laughs> it is a labyrinth. In the very next chapter, the next layer of, of teaching through story occurs in the story of Cain and Abel. And suddenly, without any background information provided, Cain and Abel are making offerings to the Lord, grain offerings. Um, And this is important to add the word offering to the word sacrifice. They're not the same word, but the system that we typically call the sacrificial system is actually comprised of five kinds of offering, some of which are sacrifice. Sacrifice and offering, though, are adjacent terms, if not synonymous, and um, both relate to how people are able to relate to God through a system of offerings. We'll say here, this is the solution that humanity needs something in order to remain in the presence of God, which is from which every form of goodness and truth and beauty comes. And what is the institution? What is the reality at the center of the universe that is set up? It is sacrifice, the ability of life to cover death. And, man, without going off into the philosophers who think about this, I really like ignoring all that, including, like, mouses. Like, there's a major sociological work that I think has actually shaped all Protestant imaginations on this, on sacrifice and humanity and selfhood and go, just push all that to the side and take what like take what's laid out in the story of God in scripture on its own terms and you go you need to remain in the presence of God because that is your telos that's what you were made for how are you going to do that you need life represented in the blood of animals to cover and to a certain extent purify both humanity and the camp from the from the in the skin ontological in the nature taint of sin now and the way of doing this for the entirety of the people ends up 
being developed in that vassal treaty that we mentioned in Exodus. Yeah, in terms of the ontological taint, I think it's helpful to break it down into at least two categories, one of which is brokenness. Like, uh, we are marred and therefore not fit as images, uh, as idols of the God, and we are indebted because of our breaking of relationship with the God. And somehow, sacrifice, the life of the animal, which is in the blood, um, solves this problem. There's a recent episode of The Bible Project, like it just came out, and the, it's going through, I don't know what series it is, but the title is something, What is Atonement, I think it is. We'll link to it. It's a great like 30, 40 minute discussion on the sacrificial system that will add a lot. Um, in it, Mackey summarizes the five kinds of offerings that are instituted. Um, and it, these come up in a few places, Leviticus, but uh, there is the ascension offering slash the whole burnt offering. And I'm going to use a word that I don't like very much, but we'll come back. Uh, don't, uh, <laughs> don't get freaked out that I don't like this word. We'll explain why. But uh, the, out of these five kinds of offering, there are three that provide some atonement function. And we're going to say that atonement is what relates these offerings to the problem of impurity and indebtedness. So ascension offering, the whole slash the whole burnt offering, is one kind that provides that. Then there's the gift offering slash cereal or grain offering. Then there's the peace offering slash the fellowship offering. They have different names. Um, then fourth, there's the purification offering. But this is an atonement type of offering slash the sin offering. And fifth, there's the guilt offering slash reparation or restitution offering also an atoning offering. So Blaine, why am I all squirrely about the word atonement? You are squirrely about the word atonement because it's not in the Bible. It's a fake fake word. It's a fake word. Now, fake words is a whole anthropological can of worms (laughs) that I'd love to open, but no. you know, it's fascinating. The very first place that I ran into this was a book on, was Dan Allender's book on Sabbath, mm-hmm. where he talks about the biblical translators dealing with a cultural phenomenon they did not understand, and so trying to come up with a word that represented the event. And so they said, uh, these moments of sacrifice make oneness, make create unity and peace. They create but what they mostly do is they make it safe for man to dwell in the presence of God, for them to be one together. So we'll just call this at one making or, you know, the one making thing, which is at one meant. It's literally a compound word of those three parts. The actual word is Ant-Man. Cover or covering. Cover. Like the lid covers the pot. The blanket covers the cold person. That's not the only metaphorical meaning in terms of uh, straightforward covering up a thing, but the word means cover. When I first encountered at one mint, I thought it was just an example of a preacher making a really bad leap of logic and cleverly, you know, it's like saying there's no I in team or something like that. I thought right. that he had just noticed it and, made, and, and was like making that connection and I scoffed. And then later realized, oh no, he was. That's literally what the word is. At one mint. And and the reality that is 
gestured towards, that is indicated in at one meant, that's actually covering, is that there's some, cover is the best frame. There is a, there's a covering that's extended over the people that makes it safe for them to remain with a God who is good. Yeah, and in regards to the problems of impurity or brokenness, being marred and being indebted, uh, the term uh, covers <laughs> both of those definitions, right? Uh, uh, the blood of the animal, which is the life of the animal as a stand-in, um, the animal is sinless and only, only pure, unmarred animals could actually serve in this function. The blood was put, uh, was used in various ways to cover the object of the sacrifice, right? Uh, in this case, the people or the individual, whatever it is. Yeah, the sprinkle, you know, it was like the thumb and toe thing and then sprinkled on the people and then very significantly taken and sprinkled around the camp. Exactly. So the place that is impure gets covered with blood and the death stuff of sin, this is using, uh, who is it, de Young's language, I think, the death stuff of sin or of impurity or just death gets covered in life stuff. There was also a system by which using the same word cover, which I think is a Kippur, like, like Yom Kippur, uh, it means day of covering, right? It's not, not day of atonement, the day of covering. Um, there w- anyways, there was also uh, a, w- like a, a way in which debts could be paid by someone else through a covering, a kippur. Um, so this twofold function of sacrifice is a very simple and straightforward way of looking into what's happening with the, with the sacrificial system. It doesn't cover all the nuance at all. Um, I, I don't think we're... <laughs> I don't think we're prepared to cover all the nuance of the whole system, but it is very straightforward when you break it down into that way. This, um, just as a side note, like a huge debate in the world of Christendom today, if you hadn't noticed, is over uh, theologies, theories of atonement, right? Atonement theory is much debated these days, and I think a lot of the, the errors that come... Um, begin with the presuppositions and even letting the argument being defined as atonement theory. Like, what question are we asking? What, what's the question that we're even debating? I think it's much better to go back and just let the story instruct us in the way that it's given. I will also say as a little soapbox side note that right now it's really in vogue to decry substitutionary, uh, penal substitutionary atonement theory. I think that's more of a sign of the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, um, the emotional hangups of younger generations of people, etc. And it's a result of bad philosophy, bad theology, and presenting false choices. You have to choose penal substitutionary atonement or whatever else I'm offering. It's also a result of bad Trinitarian doctrine. The father is not abusing his son. God is putting himself up on the cross. Anyways, that uh, little diatribe will be only relevant to people that maybe care about this debate, but that's my soapbox. I'm guessing that most people who listen to a three-hour-long podcast on the story of God care at least somewhat about yeah. how this stuff works, <laughs> uh, which, again, sort of has to do with reasons to engage theology and uh, positions, subject positions of the theologian, which is just to say these things can work more than one way there 
but if you know and so being motivated to discover and to experience and participate in more of the life of God that's great uh, I would say that probably a lot of these are motivated by people trying to earn master's degrees or PhDs at academic institutions. Well, I think a big source of motivation in, in this debate, especially people that are really offended by substitutionary atonement theory, is it offends them. And like just straightforwardly, it is profoundly offensive, especially to the modern sense of justice. So we'll leave that there and maybe come back another time uh, in a different show and talk about priests, sacrifice, and the otherworldly role of Christians in post-modernity. For now, we'll just say that a system was set up that may, had clear guidelines inside of which a person's deep corruption could be resolved, uh, which left a need because it it addressed the situation but did not change the nature of the person. And so the entire biblical story is going to forecast the need for David asks, create in me a clean heart. Jeremiah laments the wicked heart of humanity and looks to a day when the law will be written on the human heart, when something that has not happened yet that works inside this same system of life to purify death does something radically different. Last in triad number one, last in the first three problems, is death, which I've often, I've found in reading on this that sin and death overlap in people's minds, and maybe they should, because there's certainly parallel things in the lines of the New Testament writers that we quoted but you live in a world that is subject to decay. What do you do? What do you do about the, about the entropic direction of the universe? And again, how God became king, N.T. Wright's book has a really great section on this, which is that there is a thread in the Bible, which he calls one, one of the dark threads of the Old Testament. I think that's sufficiently epic. I love that. But it goes, there is, there is hope, but the exact way that that's going to happen is obscure. And the hope is that there is this continual passing from death to life in the story of Israel. We talked about the Sea of Reeds being the Sea of the Dead, over which Pharaoh was supposed to be the king, and God separating it and drawing his people from death to life. You go, wow, there's a way to life, but it's through death. I... Abraham binds his son and in so receives him. The prophets pass through death to life, maybe quite literally in the case of Jonah, but certainly in the life of someone like Elijah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, where the life that is coming, even Babylon is described as being like a great fish in the Jonah story that's coming to swallow Israel and by death deliver them into their future. But the, you know, the, the pieces of that picture are scattered. It's just not clear how it's going to work, except that the psalmists do observe something like, even those who have gone down to dust will kneel before you. 
or not even the darkness is as dark to you, or if I made my bed in the depths, you were there. They're gesturing at hope, but how? It's interesting. There are other Psalms and passages in the Old Testament that, and many have said this, that give the sense that it wasn't always a given that there was life after death, that um, there was some sense of being in the grave and maybe a disembodied or just, just being buried. Uh, I'm not sure how literal or um, or how, like how material or spiritual that imagination was. But the psalmist also says, the dead can't praise you, um, so bless me now, because when, I, when I'm dead, I'll be dead, is what some of the psalms feel like. I don't know exactly what worldview came there, but I remember asking uh, one of my professors about this, and he said, well, yeah, it's unclear exactly what theology, what vision of the afterlife there was in Israel. There's kind of a variety of illusions. But then certainly by Jesus' time, there were a cohort of teachers, Pharisees, who believed in resurrection, believed in a life in the world to come. So this idea of hope in life again had developed at some point over the history of Israel, um, definitely coming into sharper focus in the Second Temple period, but it was unclear how that would happen. At least that's my best understanding of the history yeah, part of this concept, too, is reflected. We're going back to right for a minute, though. I guess we're going to substitute him with... Uh, Vanderlaan is superior, but... Go other voices. Quote, go ahead and quote right. But one place that you can find a description of an of a ancient Jewish conception of time is in Wright's work, where he just talks about the phrase everlasting life. And, you know, actually, interestingly enough, the Bible Project guys have been doing work on this too recently, but the Zoe Aeneas, right? And it is related to a Jewish belief about time. Here's right. The phrase Zoe Aeneas refers to one aspect of an ancient Jewish belief about how time was divided. In this viewpoint, there were two ions. We sometimes use the word eon in that sense. The present age, ha-olan hazah, in Hebrew, and the age to come, ha-olam ha-ha. The age to come, many ancient Jews believed, would arrive one day to bring God's justice, peace, and healing to the world as it groaned and toiled within the present age. And then, that's the end of that quote, and then there was debate about what happened to people. Yeah. Like, are we gone? Are we resurrected? What exactly happens? And what justification do we have to be hopeful about that coming of the age? Right. It was a question. Yeah. So our comment on this one would be that at the end of the Old Testament, whether you end at with a few more prophets or with Chronicles, you, death is actually a big question. And there's more than one way to think about it. If you, you'd be like, man, am I going to become a disembodied Raphaim? I mean, a nefesh is a living creature with sustained by the life of God. But when the breath goes away, there's no more creatures. So like, what happens? This is not the original design. And there's a big, the hints are there, but they are not, are not, are not clear, which is part of what makes the work of Jesus so cool and such a surprise. But that, you know, almost all we have to say, or all I have to say about 
you know, spiritual rebellion, unholy exile, spiritual oppression as one bracketed problem, sin as one problem, and death as one problem, is that there is a lot of conversation and a lot of hinting about hope beyond the finality of death. But how that's going to work is not made totally clear until you have the Rosetta Stone, the, the key to the universe, Jesus. Now, if you were here in our last episode, you'll remember that we talked about sort of two groups of unholy three things that relate to the origin of evil in the world. And one of them is sin and death and spiritual oppression or just the interface between rebellious humans and evil and destructive spiritual powers. And we also said that you may be more familiar with the formulation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's just worthwhile, since that is a thing, to touch on the way that the salvation plan in Israel addresses those issues. So maybe world and the flesh together. Anthony, you hate the ritual life of the people and the Jewish feasts, so nothing to say here. Oh, that sounds so terrible when you say that. <laughs> just the opposite, listeners. I love those things. <laughs> By choosing the nation of Israel and reestablishing a way for a nation to relate to God, he begins the work of bringing salvation to the world. God's salvation plan in calling out Israel does deal or does show the framework for salvation in Christ and how that will solve once and for all the problems of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in regards to the world and the flesh, the flesh being an individual's uh, sin nature and the world being the systematic outworking of that at scale, let's say, to be super short and blunt about it, um, to be overly simple, um, God provides Torah. He provides what we normally refer to as the law. And Torah is instruction. It comes to us as a law because when it gets translated into the Greek, nomos is the word that gets used, and that basically means law, but it's got a much richer meaning than the word law in common English usage. Torah comes from a root that means to shoot, as in shooting an arrow, to point, and uh, has the meaning of instruction, uh, as a father would instruct his children. So God gives instruction how to live, uh, the rules of how to live, what the good life is, what the fulfillment of the divine image is for people. He teaches Israel how to live correctly. This is just so, it's so good. And maybe one of the problems in a person's engagement with the rules, you know, of the vassal treaty as they exist inside the Torah, which is not just those rules, but an entire section of the Bible that relate to this arrow thing. And also, man, I was talking recently about nomos and the fact that it's not, it's not the guidelines. It is much more like the biblical conception of wisdom. It's the whole, it's the relevant information, the patterns, the characteristics, the ways that you can change a thing, like the nomos, the laws, you know, it's by studying the laws of atmosphere that we're able to make internal combustion engines work. 
And so it's by studying like the law of God that we're able to engage in the restoration of human beings. But in our last episode, you know, we threw out a working definition of the flesh as, you know, a system of broken impulses, habits, deformities, and inordinate desires that are centered in the body and connected with spiritual evil that are shaped by sin and that lead a person further into fragmentation and darkness. And what can be done? You actually get, uh, you get a story to live into. You get a pattern of activity and rules to structure your time. And you get a ritual life of sacrifices and feasts and fasts and celebration that trains your nature into a person of love. You get stories and poems, songs, uh, ways of eating, ways of doing all the parts of life, how to relate to other people. And it's awesome. We don't talk very much. When I was growing up, it was the weirdos, and I guess this is still kind of true, <laughs> who were interested in the Jewish feasts, the Jewish celebrations, you know, Yom Kippur, when she said the Day of Atonement, or, you know, the Feast of Trumpets, or the Feast of Tabernacles. But actually, they're, they're extremely important. They flesh out your vision to the work of Christ. I kind of wish that your wife were here just to give us like that, sh that spiel that she gives on <laughs> how to read the feasts and what's fulfilled and what's unfulfilled. But like, it's amazing that in, in the story of the people of Israel, there's a salve, there's a balm there for the flesh, which is actively destroying a person, but it's beyond our ability to find a way out. So what God offers is live this way, tell these stories, think about these things, have these celebrations. These will, these will make you human again. Now, before we talk about what happens with, in the devil formulation, the world one is pretty simple where you get a theocracy you get a kingdom where God is king and with then human administrators. And dive into the history of Israel, you will quickly find that what is called the United Monarchy exists for like, it's like a lighthouse where it's coming and coming and then all of a sudden there's just a flash of light and then it's going and going. <laughs> it's so sad. That's kind of what it's like. But what God does to address the world, you know, which you said, the outworkings, the emergent system of the flesh and the devil, and it stokes the flesh and it destroys people and it elevates what is evil. And it's humans left to their own devices creating a, creating a nation for themselves. But instead, you get the theocracy of God, which you see in David and briefly in Solomon. It's not, the, it's not you know, whatever. It's not the United States of Israel under Yahweh. It's the kingdom of God, which is governed by David, who's an illustration of Jesus, who's an anticipation. And when you get a description of Solomon's reign in 1 Kings, the place is Tarshish and everything else that it touches on, you realize there's a historical reality where there was a Davidic empire. And the extent of that empire coordinated with the Genesis 10 Table of Nations and an event that is coming in the book of Acts as a stand-in for the entire world. So it's God forms a people who become a kingdom 
that expresses the good reign of God to the entire world. And that is the solution to the world problem. The kingdom of God is the solution to the world, and it's illustrated in the life of Israel, but it doesn't last long. The solution to the world is that God makes a people who are a priest and mediate the revelation and reconciliation of God to all the other nations. Teach them what they've been taught, which is the Torah. And now the devil. Ant-Man, just what do we need to know about Israel as it relates to uh, depraved and seductive spiritual powers at large in the world, wandering spirits in the desert, anything you want to say about that? <laughs> well, it's interesting. The wandering spirits in the desert aspect, um, we've debated on this. Like, is there the casting out of demons prior to Jesus? I believe there is. You've, you've been taught there isn't. Um, but in terms of demonic possession, uh, I don't know a whole lot about what, how Israel solves that problem. But at the larger picture of how God expresses his salvation plan in regards to spiritual oppression to the rebellious powers, we've already answered that to some degree. And just to restate it in this context, he calls out a people to be faithful to him. He creates a way for people to relate to the Most High God when otherwise they are enslaved to all the other gods. He breaks their bonds. In the story of taking Israel out of Egypt and bringing judgment on the other gods, the ten gods through the ten plagues, he shows his victory over his enemies and a way for Israel to come and relate to him and be set free from their slavery. So uh, one answer to the question of how God expresses his salvation for mankind from the devil is in Exodus. The Exodus is a picture of, of what he does there. He calls them out. He woos them when they inevitably, uh, like Gomer in uh, Hosea returned to their prostitution. He brings them back again and again. He's made away with the sacrificial system. Basically the same answers. Torah, a called out people, a way to be brought back close to God is, for the time being, how God deals with the problem of the devil. But there's still that, that prophecy that he gives Eve in the beginning that someone will come, some descendant who will crush the head of the serpent. But it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, a few more things to say, especially because you brought up wandering spirits and uh, contentions around exorcism. Something that's interesting here is it kind of depends on what your canon is. <laughs> you know, it's also Michael Heiser's claim that until you get to Jesus, there's no person commanding directly a demon to flee. That, one, that one's beyond uh, question because otherwise there's ceremonial appeals to the authority of God. And so, yeah, exactly. It's the quality and authority with which it happens, not whether or not it happens. So it's more of a nuanced distinction rather than before Jesus, if a person was possessed, it could just, that was that. No, because if anyone picks up, you know, the seer in ancient Greece, they'll see that addressing demonic possession is a major ancient world yeah. concern. And a few of these, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the famous Qumran um, papers, there's so much in there that's about exorcism and there uh there are extra biblical psalms that are part of the dead sea scrolls that you can just find by looking or not find if you don't care by looking up dss psalms um and there's at least there's a collection that's called four songs for charming demons with music <laughs> uh which i would not be a thing to do um and then there's lots of midrash 
there's also Jewish commentary on kind of how to do exorcism. There's some Jewish debate around whether or not David did it, because when he played music, he was able to temporarily placate the the shadim uh, that was a, that was afflicting Saul. But we'll go like, well, you have the answers that you just said, and then you also kind of have an ongoing problem, uh, most evidenced in like a few places. One, the the nation and the camp are meant to be a safe place. That's why during the Day of Atonement. You have the goat for Yahweh, and then the one that carries the sin of the people away, which is for Azazel, and you just send it away. You're like, well, you know, the corrupt spirits are out there, and as long as we follow the vassal treaty rules, they're not in here, so we're okay. Problem, the devil is constantly infiltrating in cult prostitutes and in people going around and making idols and in freaking Aaron overseeing the dedication of an idol, and, and it's like, you have a way for God's dominion to expel destructive spirits. But it keeps getting... The people keep making a way back in. The people keep making a way back it's, in. It's like uh, we talked about, I'm not sure on this podcast, we talked about how in Matthew, when Jesus is talking about the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna slash hell, uh, the Valley of Hinnom, like, the, the, the picture is that when we live in a, certain, in a way that's contrary to kingdom life, we are bringing the, the fire and, and uncleanness and pollution of Hinnom into the city, into Jerusalem. And the same is true with, which is like, this is the problem of sin as a way in to the people for the devil. The devil uh, keeps coming in because we keep making room for him to come in and giving permission and inviting Yes. And by we, I mean in the story Israel. <laughs> Israel. And so you have, like, you know, you have the deliverance problem, which is just how do you actually purify humanity? The giganto mocked, like the Nephilim question, you know, in the book of Joshua, you have uh, setting things apart, Kerem, setting things apart for God to deal with, which is a fascinating way to think about the issue. But Joshua doesn't complete it. Pop quiz, who completes the war on the giants? You know this because he kills one. David. Yeah. And it's during, but it doesn't last. It's during David's rule that the instructions that were given to Joshua and by Joshua to eliminate the Nephilim, David finally gets it done. But then read on. You're going to have wandering spirits possessing people when Jesus rolls, rolls into the story eventually. And in the destruction of Jerusalem, you're going to have, you know, all kinds in the prophetic literature. You're going to have demons and night owls and, you know, <laughs> all these other all weird kinds creatures of monsters doing their thing. And it's like, okay, you have the ritual life of the people, you have Torah, you have sacrifice. But like death in the story of Israel, addressing evil sets up the need might be an imperfect way to put it, for a permanent solution and for a way for the authority of God to be received and directly expressed over the rest of the spiritual world. God's plan of calling out Abram and naming him Abraham and establishing a nation that had not previously existed is part of the good news. It is grace. It is good. 
it's not sufficient, obviously, because it points the way to Jesus. But it's important to see this whole story, the whole Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets, the wisdom literature, as grace. It is God's favor to have chosen a nation from the remnant of his people and made a plan for how to, over the course of thousands of years, teach Israel and then the world through Israel the story of what his original designs were, what the telos of mankind is, what good living looks like, what his purposes are, his, his wisdom, the things hidden since the foundation of the world, his grand design, his personal nature, his nature and uh, how to interact with him and his loving kindness. All of this he saw fit to teach us by choosing a people and he related to them and told a story, a story without which we would not be able to understand the arrival of the Messiah. Jesus, the anointed one, comes as the culmination of that story, and everything he does refers to it. Practically everything he says quotes it or riffs on it. So we can consider God's calling out of Abram and creation of the nation of Israel as him preparing the minds of people, preparing a place in the world for Jesus to be born such that we could comprehend the revelation of God in Jesus at all. So it's good news. It's a beautiful story. We're trying to summarize the story of Israel, and we've probably skipped over your favorite metaphor or layer, etc. So sorry about that. We, uh, this is just our first stab at laying the framework there's enough wisdom and nuance and texture and depth in the Old Testament alone that you can spend the rest of your life studying it and not find the bottom. Yeah, it's like saying, we're telling the story of God to orient you to your situation and to show you the way into life that is truly life as we're discovering it ourselves. And after exploring God, whose nature is a glorious and beautiful mystery, who's wonderful, and his plan for the universe revealed in creation, and then the disasters of the fall, then followed 2,000 years of very important history that and you can use the word history in many ways of like its ultimate theological testimony, its human testimony, and it is the salvation plan. My comments here would be to remember that the God, the triune God who loves you is the main character of this story, and that's good for you, and that you see, there's, you see what that God is like in the salvation project that begins before, you know, the ink recording the fall is dry on the page. It's the next line. It's so God, you know, appeared to Abraham and called him and began healing humanity and purifying the world and overthrowing spiritual evil and establishing a kingdom and and actually, basically everything we're going to talk about in kind of the second half of the Story of God series is going to refer to the stuff that we forgot to talk about in the history of Israel <laughs> because it's prequel and sequel. It's, you know, it's rising action and climax. And then 
a lot of what we would say in this section of the show, how should I live, is like, you should live the life of the church, which has an extraordinary, an extraordinary level of direct continuity with Israel, even such that the language of assembly that's used for the nation of God in ancient times and the people of God now is the same. Uh, ecclesia, gathering. But here, here are my recommendations, and, or, or just one, actually. Uh, it would be if we've set up the, the sin disasters here and the debacle, world, flesh, devil, sin, death, spiritual oppression, and then shown God's salvation, it will really help you understand why the friends of Jesus, the followers of Jesus across time have prayed the way that they've prayed that's recorded in things like liturgies and, and, in, other, and in written prayers. And in, in the call to God for him to show us how to be saved, how to respond to his work as it relates to sin, as it relates to death, as it relates to spiritual oppression. And so I, I'm finding extremely fruitful in this season to actually pray. And, you know, some of it is how I got myself in this mess of following Jesus into being a homesteader is by praying like, Jesus, where are you saving me from the world? And show me how to respond. Where are you saving me from the flesh? And show me how to respond. Where are you saving me from the malevolent spiritual powers? And show me how to respond. If you'll pray that for a week or two and pay attention, be ready to pay attention to the response, you, your Father who loves you will show you how to receive your salvation how to step more deeply into the way that brings life. You know, like the role of asking is actually pretty simple. I think that maybe I have an untested hypothesis that we don't because we actually know that Jesus will answer and therefore don't really want to, but it is worth it. Go, Jesus, thank you for making a way for me to be saved from the world and then to be a mechanism of salvation to the world, an agent of salvation. Show me where you're doing that. Thank you for purifying my humanity. Show me where you are training me to be mature. Jesus, thank you for saving me from spiritual evil from the devil and his kingdom. Show me how you are making me into a person to overthrow spiritual evil and then respond in the way that he leads you. Good my Jesus coming back again. Oh, he's coming, he's coming after his own. Oh, he's coming, he's coming after